Marvin, what do you make of all this? Man, I don't even have an opinion. Well, you gotta have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped... Oh, oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. Shit. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 84. Yeah, we don't have any cool 84 puns, No, do we? we don't. But I was thinking about something recently. <laughs> I just want to bring this up. I was watching Cliffhanger earlier this week. Sure, yeah. I think we shit on Rennie Harlan too much. I feel like we've not shit on Rennie Harlan No, like, all. the film culture in general. Like, oh, oh, we, oh. we all say that, like, Die Hard 2 is an inferior film to Die Hard, which it is. But that too is very serviceable. But Cliffhanger is excellent. Cliffhanger is amazing. Yeah. Like Eric Quaylen, that, that John Lithgow performance is one of the sure. best villains of the 90s you get a good, in terms of like an action movie. You get a really good Michael Rooker performance in there. Yeah. Season's over, asshole. <laughs> That's a quality flick. It is. It's really good. And even like his really terrible movies like Mindhunters, that, mm-hmm. that weird movie where all on Island, the FBI um, profilers, it's bad, but it's like entertainingly yeah. bad. And like they commit to like ridiculous They're, the climax takes place underwater and they're both holding guns above the water well, no, see, waiting for the surface and that's entertaining here's the thing about cliffhanger that i've always enjoyed is the idea that it's clearly done with special effects obviously but it looks no, kind of it looks kind of good yeah you know what i mean there's a like lot of it, practical effects in that right but it's it's they're selling it i felt that Sylvester Stallone think, was in danger do you think on they actually occasions. do you think they dropped a uh, cuz i know it's filmed like in, it was filmed mostly in Italy, I believe. Do you think they actually dropped a helicopter? Like a like? Do you think they did a model, or do you think they dropped like? I a, have to assume I, there's the regulations regarding dropping helicopters off of mountains. It is probably more lax in Italy than it is here. Yeah, I would think so. And oh. it looked good. It looked great. Yeah, it's a good movie. So Randy Harlan, you get a pass for yeah. now. Randy Harlan, you get our you get our clink here because we're drinking Brooklyn Brown Ale from Brooklyn, New York. Trying to do some fall. Feeling beers as the temperatures started to get colder. Started to get colder, and then they stopped getting colder. And then they yeah. decided to go back to the higher 60s. Oh. I almost I almost broke and just did an IPA again. Mostly because there was just mostly IPAs and porters or stouts, and no, it's we're going way down. too hot We're going, we're going all the way into the black there, Mario. No. We started, we started with the IPAs. You know, they ran a little light. There were some, some beige in there, some tans. And we do the Oktoberfest, the copper, yeah. copper Oktoberfest. We'll do colors. some ambers and browns, and then we're going to get into the stouts and porters, and then we're going to start going back up into the sours and the farmhouses, and then bam, right back to IPAs. And it'll be a nice trend for the years and years that we do this until we'll we're old, decrepit, both and dead. Both weigh two hundred and fifty pounds, but yeah. we'll be happy. Yeah. You know, it's a, you know, it's a dark thought to think about, though. What? God, what was I? What was I watching? I was watching something. It's like this. This promotes our drinking. Is the fact that. One day in the future will be the last time anybody ever thinks of you. So let's drink to that. I don't like brown ales, and I still don't like brown ales. It's pretty good. I like brown ale. It's it's good for a brown ale. It's nutty. Um, I know what our tones are getting. Like a slight coffee undertone. Not really coffee. Yeah, nutty and caramel. Caramel? I get, I get a, a little caramel. Coffee. 
I don't get much coffee, actually. Saying that, I said that, now I don't. I, the only reason I'm not saying caramel is because I don't think it's sweet enough for you the know caramel. What? It's dry. Really? Yeah. I, it's dry, but I'm, I'm getting a dry sweetness. It almost tastes like a blended turtle to me, like a turtle candy, not mm. a um, <laughs> Not a turtle? Amphibian. Amphibian? Right? Turtles are amphibian? A shelled, yeah. blended turtle? No, a turtle's a reptile. Well, good thing we're not a zoology they're mo- podcast. They're monsters, regardless. Right now, our one zoologist listener is just pounding his fist. All right, let's um, talk about some new movies while we drink this. So we actually do have some late-breaking news this week. Uh, there was a snowstorm in Connecticut. Um, I don't know if I would officially call it a storm, per se. It was maybe four inches worth of snow, and it was really wet, and it was gone by 9.30 the next day. Um, but it was significant enough and icy enough that me and Mario were not able to get together this week to have a conversation about the new movies that we saw. Uh, so instead, since I have the gear with me, um, we both decided I would do a quick review of Paul Dano's new film Wildlife for you. And then next week we'll kind of tackle some of the stuff that we were going to talk about this week, specifically Netflix's Chris Pine vehicle, the outlaw King, um, but until then, um, I'm just going to dig into wildlife. You know what they call trees in a forest fire? Fuel. You know what they call the trees left up when the fire goes by? They call them the standing dead. Mom is dead. Is dead okay? Of course he is. His pride got hurt. That happens sometimes. You don't have to worry about anything, Joe. There comes a time when a man needs something more to hang his hat on. I got this homicide in my head. I need to do something about it. Uh, when movie reviewers talk about uh, first-time directors, one of the compliments they like to give them is that he or she directed with confidence. Uh, Meaning, I suppose, that the film has a singular vision, or that the director doesn't hew closely to their influences, Uh, that the film has something to say and it isn't afraid to go all the way with it. It isn't afraid of confrontation. Um, For the first 10 to 15 minutes of Paul Dano's extraordinary new film, I thought that confidence was exactly what the movie lacked. Um, It's set in Great Falls, Montana in the fall of 1960 against the backdrop of a closely raging wildfire. Uh, The film was quiet, which I always appreciate. The images were good, the script worked well enough, and the acting was fine, but it seemed stale. And though it had only just started, um, it seemed tired. It seemed like it was already, you know, putting itself to sleep. Uh, The film is an adaptation of Richard Ford's novel of the same name, and the beginning of the film read a lot like the novel, boring, and because of that, a little overwrought. But then Jerry, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, loses his job as the pro at a local golf course, and Jeanette, played by the completely magnificent Carrie Mulligan, tries to find a job until Jerry can get back on his feet, and Joe, played again wonderfully by Ed Oxenbold, can do nothing but watch as his family descends into chaos. It is at this point that the film 
really takes off and not in a traditional way. The film stays quiet, the images verge on the pastoral, and the genius understated score by David Lang never obscures or tries to direct the viewer as to how they should feel about what is happening on the screen. But Dano opens up the film in a way that is totally riveting, and the movie ends up being probably, maybe, objectively the best film I have seen this year. I say objectively because while it isn't my favorite movie, that honor still goes to Ethan Hawke's Blaze. There are no false steps, there is no wasted images, there's no manipulation. The script written by Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan is perfect. Uh, they reorder several of the scenes and pieces of dialogue from the book, um, making the movie a vast improvement on a kind of boring book. Uh, the metaphor of the forest fire, while obvious, is handled well. There is a real gravity to its presence and what it represents. The other impressive aspect of the movie's technique is that it never lets Ed Oxenbold's Joe become a cipher, simply a pair of eyes bearing witness to the collapse of his family, as he is portrayed in the novel. Instead, the movie Joe is fully invested in his story, has his own feelings, his own responses and reactions to what's going on around him, and while his dialogue is sometimes relegated to simply answering his parents' questions, agreeing or disagreeing with them, he does a tremendous amount of work with his face and how he carries himself. For instance, after Jerry leaves to go fight the fire, which sends the character spiraling into the unknown, Jeanette and Joe go to dinner at the home of Warren Miller, a local businessman that Jeanette has now started seeing a lot of now that her husband is out of the picture. There is obviously something physical going on between his mother and Warren Miller. Joe can see it, and when he watches them dance together, he is a perfect image of conflict. He understands the general idea of why his mother is acting the way she is, dressing provocatively, drinking, playfully kissing Warren Miller, but he wishes it was different, wishes his father would survive the fire, come home, and set everything back to normal. In this regard, Oxenbold's performance perfectly mirrors Gyllenhaal's. Not being the hugest Gyllenhaal fan, I am always impressed with him when his obvious skills as an actor match his perpetual youthful look, and it works better than ever here. In Wildlife, Gyllenhaal comes off as the ideal blend of strong but vulnerable and idealistic, completely sure that going to fight the fire will help stop the humming in his head. Bill Camp does his job as Warren Miller, being simultaneously smarmy but noble in his way. But it is Carrie Mulligan who pulls this movie together and transforms a good movie into a great one. Something to go back to, something to linger over, something to think about. And scene after scene, the viewer gets to watch this character contract and expand emotionally, rendering her final scenes in the films, ones depicting a woman barely holding it together, wonderfully wrenching. The idea of the forest fire comes into play here. They talk about this in the movie, that out of the ashes of the destruction, new life can emerge, and while the end of the movie doesn't resolve as happily as the book, it does resolve more honestly, more fully. The final shot is a wonder, with all three of the main characters expressing their individual relationships to this new life they are living in a truly beautiful way. Mulligan's Jeanette puts on a brave face, a tight smile, while Gyllenhaal's Jerry shows almost no emotion, his dark eyebrows running like a parallel line opposite his mouth, and thus flattening out his affect even more. It is a look that says he is not grieving anymore, but whether or not he has fully moved on is impossible to say. Between them is Joe, who people throughout the film are always saying doesn't know anything, that he hasn't lived. Yet Joe's face is the most complicated of all, but also the most satisfying. He is not happy, not sad, but aware. Aware of what the experience of the fall has cost him, but also what he has gained from it, and how important that all is. This is an almost perfectly executed film. And just another example of how 2018 is turning out to be a thoroughly surprising year for movies. All right, we'll be right back with our number 84s. 
My number 84 is further up on Tom's list. The first instance of a movie that's lower on my list that's higher up on your list, right? Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. No, no definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Anyways, my 84 is 1994 Quentin Tarantino crime film, Pulp Fiction. I believe it stars Uma Thurman. She's all right. Um, She's a person. Some, somebody else. Ving Rhames, I think, is in it. I, do we have to go into a plot description about this? I don't think so. No. So basically, it's just a conglomeration of tales, if you haven't seen it. The reason that this is on my list, and I think... We're going to have a further conversation about Pulp Fiction later. Is has a young teenager, this was the movie that made me start noticing film mm-hmm. in its component parts. Um, non-chronological storytelling, a focus in dialogue. Um, it's the creme de la creme of intro to filmmaking, I think, for a lot of teenagers of the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, and if not intro to filmmaking, then intro to film appreciation. appreciation. Yeah. And so when I first saw this as a teenager, you know, it's very approachable, and it's how graphically violent it is, how much language there is, the drug use. Like it's really it has a slight fun grittiness to it. Oh but yeah, it's, super it's fun. very clever mm-hmm. in many ways. Or, and this is where it gets interesting. This is eighty four on my list. And I, you know, as a teenager, early college, I loved it. I watch it now, and I really don't like it anymore. <laughs> Why? I, I put it as a pivotal film because absolutely sure. did, it, did it shape me. But it's so boring now in retrospect in the sense that hmm. everything is so on the nose in its dialogue. Um, and, and I don't mean cliche because obviously it defined a generation of cinema sure and i'm not criticizing the film the film is monumental in what it did for yeah, cinema. Yeah, yeah but man is it so just hard to get through now let me just throw an example out there do you feel that as a culture you as representative of a culture because i kind of think maybe this movie has gone that way in the sense that maybe Reservoir, something like Reservoir Dogs has kind of overtaken it. Nope, we watched the... Reservoir Dogs and also find that now. Kind oh, of do you? Okay. Because yeah. I, I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about Pulp Fiction anymore, but a lot of people still talk about Reservoir Dogs, and I was wondering if it's because it's grittier. It doesn't seem so cliche anymore because every movie that came after Pulp Fiction that aimed to be a certain kind of movie looked exactly and sounded no, exactly like Pulp this Fiction. Is, this is my problem, I think with Pulp Fiction is that it's a good introduction to film and, and a lot of people kind of veer off into either seeing film still as entertainment which is wild, you know wildly important and still uh, you know people just can appreciate film as entertainment I think they still get a lot from Pulp Fiction but I think other people of our age group kind of see something like Pulp Fiction when they're younger mm-hmm. and then they kind of like go on dive deeper into screen like the screenwriting aspects into not so much cinematography but into the editing into the performances, into the, the relationships of the characters, into how they create this patchwork that tells this overarching narrative. 
And then you watch films of the past. You dive deeper into cinema of the past. You dive deeper into cinema that, that comes after it, that's inspired by it. And you realize that this does feel like an undergraduate course almost in those styles of filmmaking. Yeah. Really effectively done. Like, you know, very important in what it does. But it just doesn't have the nuance to it anymore. Hmm. Nuance... How? It just. It, like, I don't know if there's. This, I don't know if there's a familiarity I have with this film. It's possible, and I. I. I think. Um, but I just. I hadn't watched it for so long, and I, I just found myself going like, the screenwriting. The dialogue, especially in, in the screenwriting, there's a lot of winkiness to it mm-hmm. that I don't want. See, anymore. but I find that a lot in some of the newer movies. So the stuff that really gets me off about some of the new Quentin Tarantino stuff is not the. The Pulp Fiction esque dialogue that happens between you know, you know Don Johnson and, and Jonah Hill as the Klan's members, um, you know, sitting on that hill just kind of talking about stuff, or um, you know any of the Christoph Waltz stuff, or um, you know just all he does it in every movie where the, yeah. you know these deep digressions into nothing that you know eventually leads into an act of ultra violence. Um, I find the stuff that works best in his new movies is the really the really visceral stuff where the you know um the frame of the script is kind of lost for a moment and it becomes a much more organic picture because they're all so tightly controlled it's one of the things i dislike about the hateful eight which is that it's almost staged like a play and so it doesn't have any even though it has a lot of violence in it it doesn't have any of those moments of explosive you know, you know, epiphanal violence I mean, that really means something because it's just all part of the script. And that's, I think, a big thing is Tarantino has so much of an appreciation and so much of an admiration of the film that came before him. And he's so much of an historian on mm. film. I, I think that, that's a big component of him is he knows film. Sure, but sure, he, sure. he borrows so many component parts from foreign film. From you know the spaghetti westerns, from even you know obviously the exploitation, black exploitation films, but also some of the motifs are taken from you know classic cinema, classic like for like that neorealism. And I think you know when you do that deep dive after seeing films like that and like seeing you know what the inspiration was for these movies, you find yourself kind of funneling off into a different route. Mm. Um, And I think now I, I look for more of that realistic slice of life in our media res sorts of films, you know, like that's why I'm really drawn to, even though that's kind of, even though it's slightly a strew, like the mumble core kind of genre yeah, of modern yeah, yeah. film okay. in the sense that it feels somewhat naturalistic. And, you know, Tarantino is a master of the craft in terms of the screenwriting, in terms of the editing, in terms of crafting the performances and blocking out the performances. Um, and just, you know, especially casting overall, like, getting actors who are going to have charisma with one another, but they do feel so staged. And there is such tight control over the films that yeah. you, you see the stories and you see, like, cause he, he's, he's great at crafting a, a very interesting story, but the mixture of the dialogue, the mixture of the performances together does feel very much like a movie. It has a, uh, not a, not a facade necessarily, mm-hmm. but a inauthenticity to it. Mm-hmm. In the sense of 
inauthentic in the sense of he very much is making a movie and it's very much a love letter to film. Yeah. All his films are that. Well, and that's, I mean, I think, I actually think, I think and this is why this movie is a good conversation to have, um, a good movie to have conversations about, especially in the context of a list like that, is that while I also, while I agree with you um, in a lot of what you say, I actually do see this as a fairly, even though it's it's highly staged, it's a fairly adept piece of, of, of realism in the sense that from a camera, from a, from a cinematography perspective, everything is shot in a very realistic way. There's none of those... Yeah, everything's very those, ground level, yeah. over the shoulders. There's a lot of, a lot of medium shots. And there's this. none of those key kind of unexplainable... You know, cinema shots in this movie. You know what I mean? Everything's yeah, very grounded. It's all you know. Maybe contained. Jules opening up the um, briefcase has a bit of yeah, but even but even a that, weird magic, not magic realism, but even like there's there's the perspective shot. Like sure, I don't necessarily sure. mean the light itself, but the perspective of of a low angle going up and kind of like that, that that is definitely kind of a cinema shot. But I think that's the only really one of the only ones. It's a cinema shot, but it's also you know exactly where the light's coming from. So it's not like the, the shot has been composed to um, achieve some kind of real aesthetic beauty. It's composed, it's composed to, 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 to elicit get, an emotional reaction well, in a certain it's, way. It, or elicit it is, a, but I think I, it's one of the conversations that you know, people have had for a long time about this movie in regards to like, you know, what's, in, what's in the case? It doesn't blah, blah. fucking matter. It, it doesn't matter. But I think the idea that he's... The idea that the it WWE does, championship, everyone knows yeah, that. The, the, the idea that it does matter is contained within that shot. And yeah. That's one of the things that kind of you kind of carry with you absentmindedly through the rest of the movie. Like, oh yeah, the case. What wasn't that case? And that's and why. You know, and the, yeah, that's why I like. I'm not. How does the band aid relate to the case? And see, that's that's exactly why it's interesting now to look back at this film because I still put it on that pivotal film list because of the fact. That it is so monumental and how it shapes not only my opinion of film, but how it shaped an entire generation mm. of, of filmmake of film you know people who appreciate film um, in the sense that there is discussions about you know Marcellus Wallace's bandage on the back of his neck because of it's a key discussion yeah because of this you know is that his soul inside the briefcase you know it it does elicit a, a tremendous reaction because it is such a well crafted film but it's interesting now to watch it and be like. I'm done with it. Like, I'm done with it in the sense of it's not what I want from film anymore. Yeah, and so that draws an interesting distinction between you and me because I still think Pulp Fiction gives me a lot of the things that I do want in movies. So it's like some of the movies we're going to talk about later. Like, one of the ones that came out this year, or last year, 2017, um, we're going to talk about it in a couple weeks. Um, I see a tremendous, uh, a, a tremendous link between those two movies. They're, they're, the directors have come at them from completely different angles, and the end product products are completely different. But there is there is a there's like a lineage there in regards to their realism. Yeah, you know what I mean. I would say like let's let's have that discussion. I mean, I can't talk really about some of my favorite movies of the past couple of years, Hell or High Water being one of them because we yeah. talked about that recently. But do you notice how like there's been a transition? Like you know my favorite movies of the past. Sure seven or eight years and i'm not gonna mention like i said I'm not gonna mention because they're gonna somewhere further up on the list but do you notice that like there's been a trend for me away from that that i oh yeah, yeah, yeah my favorite movie of 2017 
there's not much of an attachment to Pulp Fiction to Pulp Fiction right. at all. Um, Whereas my favorite movie, maybe of this year, has a tremendous attachment to something like Pulp Fiction. And um, I, I don't know why I didn't say it. Where I think you can say that First Reformed has some. Yes. You know, uh, they're obviously totally different movies. Please do not write me and tell me that First Reformed and Pulp Fiction are nothing alike. They're nothing alike. Whereas, I understand that. And I would say Me and Hurricane Heist are, you know, my favorite <laughs> film of 2018 so far, are wildly different. Right. Um, Hurricane Heist is great. Did we mention this on the podcast? I think we did. Yeah, That's I think good. you did mention Hurricane Heist. Watch it on Netflix. Watch I'll it. make sure to tag this episode, though, with Hurricane Heist, because I'm not sure I tagged it. Just call it Hurricane Heist, Hurricane Heist, Hurricane Heist. And some super fan will tune into it, and they'll be like, oh, they're talking about Hurricane Heist? <laughs> yeah, Toby, and then it's just Toby Kebble like, I knew it. God, I did fuck, it. Fuck you, second Planet of the Apes movie. Um, And I think that's... it's. But yeah, like, you're never really here is not... There's some connection, but it's not... It's yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. So someone would say, oh, there's a connection because it's violent and because it has, you know, these loner characters and this kind of, you know, weirdo plot set up and all that stuff. Of, there's a lot of, not necessarily fat to Pulp Fiction, but there's a lot of, like, set up. There's a lot of, like, lingering um, right. to it. There's a lot of character building, and that's not, you were never really here. Well, you were never really here. It's very thin, very precise. I mean, I feel like we haven't talked a lot about um, violence in a couple weeks. Um <laughs> Have we? I feel like we did a run we there talk- where we talked about violent, like violence, like every think, single week. No, we, we talked. We talk about violence quite a bit. Okay, good. Um, There's been like one week we didn't talk about violence. Two weeks ago we were talking about Halloween. I was talking about Halloween. So, um, and I think it's interesting the things that people latch onto from this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that some people will just look at the violence and be like, "Well, it's really violent." But when I look at it, I don't really look at the violence anymore. No, I don't either. I, I look at. You know, some of the some of the really interesting compositions that he gives us in this movie, and the one that always pops into my head is right before, um, right before Vincent shoots Marvin in the face, and he turns around and he's like, "Well, you gotta have an opinion," and then he shoots him in the face. But it's this really just plain shot of you know John Travolta. Sitting in a car. You know and what? It's I... lit awkwardly. He's like his face is a little dark, and you know it's not like he took the time to you know do a push in close up and like light it really well, so John Travolta's nose seems less big or something. He's just like a sweaty guy who's just turning around in a car. Yeah, and that to me still has like this really raw energy to it that I all like that I respond to. And you know what I take from it now too. Um, and I've always kind of taken this, but I take it from it more now, and this is why I still actually can watch it and appreciate it. Cadence. Man, is there a musicality to that film? Oh, sure. And like every single, not scene necessarily, but every single story has a different cadence. Well, so let me, I mean, we could do, we're going to talk about this more. I find that that cadence kind of bites him in the ass when Quentin Tarantino enters the movie. You know what I mean? When he's kind of delivering his lines in the most sing songy way possible because everyone else is kind of doing something similar. Mm-hmm. But in all the other scenes, everything has, it's not just. The cadence is not just in the dialogue. The cadence is in the movements and the cadence is in the gestures and the cadence is in, um, you know, how people are reacting to each other. Um, yeah, and it's, I think people like people lean on the dialogue and they lean on the violence, but they don't dig into, like, why that dialogue works so well or why the violence seems so justified. Yeah, um, I, think, I think it's... For me, it's, it has a great rhythm, and I think that tarantino's you know when they go to his jimmy's jimmy's house mm-hmm. is great because 
it's the moment that kind of knocks you out and goes like, because you see a man who can't act <laughs> in Quentin Tarantino. Um, trying it but failing. And it kind of like reminds you of how all the other performances and, and the dialogue um, and, and the editing, I like, can like, mention those three parts, yeah, yeah. Um, work extremely well in creating a nice kind of tone, mm-hmm. a tune, not even tone, tune, a tune mm-hmm. to it. There's, there's a musicality. And you know me and musicality. You um, do like musicality. We're going to talk about that. For, I mean, I guess that's a, a connection that I do have with my 2017 best film is that there, I find a lot of musicality in that, mm-hmm. in its tone. Um, and I still can appreciate that with this, but it does have a moments where it kind of like pulls back. Um, but yeah, so it's it's still a great movie. It's still, if you have a 14-year-old and you really want to introduce in the movies, I think Pulp Fiction's one of the best ways to do it in terms of the modern film. Mm-hmm. I'd say maybe still the best um, in terms of, I'd say maybe that or something, a Peckinpah. I think you would go to jail know. in 2018 for showing a Peckinpah movie to a 14-year-old, Mario. Would you? I feel like you would. I feel well, like there's got to be a law against we're that gonna have, We're right? going to have a couple conversations on Peckinpah in the months and years ahead. So. But we'll make sure we invite a 14-year-old to watch it with us. <laughs> your, your children won't be old enough yet, but... Yeah. Well, we'll have to find a 14-year-old. Yeah, we'll find a, <laughs> we'll find a 14-year-old. And that was the first piece of evidence in the FBI's case against us. <laughs> I guess we better stop. I guess we'll be right back with uh, Tom's number 84. Welcome back. My number 84 is our first 2017 film. Ooh. And it is Darren Aronofsky's mother. Exclamation point. He has pictures of you in his luggage. What were you doing in their luggage? What do they want? You. Tell your children not to walk away. I was gonna do that, Mario. <laughs> I went gonna, when I edited. I was gonna do and my number eighty four is mother. No, keep doing that. I will. Then, then immediately cut to this, and then just be like, motherfucker, what are you <laughs> doing, Mario? Son of a bitch. Um, two thousand seventeen was a pretty good year for movies. Oh, exceptional. Um, I have I have a twenty seventeen film on my list. Only one, but four on my list. And in the same way that I think our conversation about Pulp Fiction... How did I not notice that? You have four? Wow. Yeah, this is my number four movie of 2017. But it's... uh, The the movies that came out in 2017 for me had a really kind of profound impact on um, my my movie going mind. I have two in a row. That was a mistake. (laughs) <laughs> but it's an honest it's an honest list. I actually did not even realize that. Oh, I thought I knew three. I didn't know the other one was a twenty seventeen movie. Okay. Um We saw Mother. We did together. We saw it together. A really awkward what, eleven ten showing? Yeah, I think we we talked about this in one of the first episodes, yeah. uh talking about like responsibility of bringing people to movies about how we had a family of four going to see mother and they quickly First, they quickly left yeah we had a we had a uh 
a trio also with a young girl, and they figured out during the R-rated previews that this was probably not going to be the movie for them. We yeah, I forgot, a, I forgot what trailer was showing. There was I like a, there was like a red band trailer, and like, yeah. hmm, we better, get, get, we better out get out of here. We had a couple um, sitting next to us that were laying on two yeah, with their was, shoes off. And They had blankets. With, yeah. yeah, with blankets, and like, no, it was like a picnic lunch or picnic dinner or something. It was, it was weird. It was uncomfortable. Um, but other than that, the, actually, the theater was pretty full for that first night. It was in one of the big theaters. Um, I think it was the only, maybe we were the only people in America that went to see this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, because it came and went <coughs> fairly quickly from I mean, the it theaters. Made, it made $44 million worldwide, but yeah. still. But it did a week at the North Haven Theater. It showed up on a Thursday night, and then it disappeared off face of the earth. I and think it was there for two weeks. I don't think it was. I think it was just there for a week. Really? Yeah. I can honestly say that when this movie finished, my mind was blown. Blew my mind, Mario. I uh, went, I drove home, and I didn't think about anything else but this movie. And I kind of felt a little drunk, even though we hadn't had anything to drink. Um, And then when I got home, I thought I had figured it the fuck out. And I texted you. Figured it out. Nailed it. Um... And I think this is uh, this is why I love this fucking list, and I love our podcast because it helps me think about not just movies, but my life and my thinking life. Um, and this movie is like a perfect. My appreciation of this movie and my my love of this movie is a perfect example of that. In that the thing that kind of made me realize what was happening, because in the in the moment, I mean, the movies of is in a, is an experience. It is something oh, yeah. you cannot really. I mean, I watched it again on on TV to do this, and it was it was powerful in different Amazon ways. Amazon Prime right now. Amazon Prime. It was powerful in different ways, but it wasn't powerful in the same way. Where it felt like I was being ripped apart. There's a real, during the last like forty minutes of that movie. There's a real interesting take I feel on it in the sense that it feels when I watched it, it kind of felt like I imagined myself as one of those auditorium members in a Greek tragedy or a Greek play. <laughs> yeah. Of like how visceral that was, yep. like, and they went all out. Like they, they used, you know, the history of it says like they staged those things with incredible focus, and it felt like that. Yeah. Even oh, though yeah. it's a film, and even though, you know, it, it it's it's not a high budget movie. It's a thirty million or so mm-hmm. dollar movie. It has a certain intensity and a certain closeness and rawness oh, yeah. that that makes you feel like oh, it gives you. Gives you the goosebumps. Yeah, the I mean, bumps. You, your your blood gets pumping. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. it's um, but it's also it's a thinker, Mario. And the thing that I thought about, and I, you know, I'm gonna digress all over the place here because my thinking on this movie is just kind of all over the place as well. Um, the thinking is a visceral thing too because you can't just even though Darren Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence kind of want to just tell you what the movie's about when they're and Javier Bardem has his opinions too when you watch it you're like I think I think Javier Bardem's is the closest bit on a bit on the of the opinion of letting the audience kind of make the decision right but he's also has his thoughts on like you know what overall is happening here um but even still when you watch it even if you went in knowing all that you'd be like there's something else I could see there's I could see that there's something I can feel inside myself that there's something else, um, and that happened to me. And the thing that kind of triggered my awareness of of what I perceive the themes of this movie to be are um, me and a friend of mine 
maybe 10, 15, 12 years ago, you know, a long stretch of time, but maybe not that long. Over, you know, 2 a.m. Some of our listeners, that's like half a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> Over 2 a.m. diner trips to get coffee and cheese fries, we had concocted... Good combo. Oh, well, when you're 20, that's just how you stay awake. That's how you, that's how you figure out the, the meaning of life. That's and, carbs and caffeine. Well, it didn't even make any difference. <laughs> no, it didn't matter to me back then. Um, now, it, now it would ruin me for yeah. like two and a half weeks, but then it didn't matter. Um, but we had concocted this story idea um, where we, you know, we, when, you're, when you're like 20, 21, 22, and you think you want to be an artist, and your only goal is to turn every archetype on its head. So we concocted this romance story in which, um, you know, the lovers at the end of the story, like, don't get together. And then when they don't get together, the world kind of starts to fall apart around them. And in reality, it's their love is the thing that's like holding the world together. And then when it falls apart and like existence falls apart, God comes in and he's like, I guess I have to start. I have to try something new. And we, to I start to start Steve Carell and Kira Knightley. No, it doesn't. Um, is that, that the premise of that movie? Well, no, it's not at all. But oh, okay. Um, it's the closest thing I can come to. <laughs> Dan in real life. Um <laughs> No, that's seeking your friend at the end no, of the I, world. Yeah. Um, I think we were going to call it like 144 or something. Like, you know, it's the 144th time God has had to remake uh, the yeah. world. And he's trying all these different things to get everything together. And for no reason at all that I can think of, because I wasn't actively thinking about it. It just popped into my fucking head. And I attributed it to what was happening in Mother. And then I got it. And then I got Mother. You know what I mean? And I, it was... My mind was blown all over again, and I kind of haven't been able to stop thinking about it since we saw it. Um, and it's also kind of ruined me for other movies, because unless you're going to do something like Mother, I don't really, I don't know what to say to you. You know what I mean? And it, it doesn't have to be the same type of horribleness that Mother tackles, but you gotta, you gotta put it all out there. I want to see... Is it horrible? Yes. They, they beat a baby. Mario? Interestingly, <laughs> in the sense though, not, see, this is why I find great about this film. It doesn't make my list. Um, we're both gigantic Aronofsky fans, and we're going to be talking a lot, a about, lot about, a about lot the of, filmography yeah. of Darren Aronofsky. I think all of them, except for one or two, or yeah. three. But we're going to we're going to be talking about one of them right now. Because the thing I find interesting about Darren Aronofsky is like he has a strong knowledge of. Christian and Jewish, like, mythology. Sure. If you want to say mythology. Um, like, Pi, for example, mm-hmm. is, like, like brings a lot of that, that folklore and a lot of that ideologies to it. And, like, that was the second film of his I saw after, you know, Requiem for a Dream, yep. which we'll be talking about. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, has, like, like, the... It's interesting you take this kind of, like, fatalistic approach, I guess, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this is this is but it's a good thing about Darren Aronofsky is for me like there's a lot of hope in that ending in the ending ending or in the in, in the eating f- the film. baby no in the film okay. in general um you know it's 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 a long for me it's a long christian kind of allegory it it tells the, sure, sure, sure. the old testament to the new testament and like everything ramps up and ramps up and ramps up um and that's somebody who is a christian who has that christian leanings like that the ending of like 
God restarting it all again. Yep. yep. Has a very hopeful ending to it. Like, yeah, yeah I agree. man I agree. doesn't appreciate what he has in this gestation of the world. But, you know, God's willingness to kind of like give him another chance is like, you know, that kind of like loving father allegory. And well, I, I mean, I understand like the entire, like, the, the, some of the intents was of like this, this mother nature and like respecting mother nature. But like, the nice thing about Arnowski is like that, you can look at that message and be like, well, I don't fucking. I don't want to take well, that from this movie. It's there. It's there. It's not. But it's yeah. not the whole movie. No. It's because um, if it was the whole movie, it would be garbage. But I think it's really. It's, I think it's one of the things that makes this movie really complicated is that it seems like at first it's going to be a fairly standard issue religious allegory, where Ed Harris is playing Adam and Michelle Pfeiffer's playing Eve and Dom Hall Gleason's playing Cain and, um, I didn't. Uh, His brother. Brian Gleason's playing Abel and. You know, Cain the kills other Brendan Gleeson son. Yeah, um, you know, there's the scene with the rib where Javier Bardem covers up his rib when he's sick, and then on the next day, Michelle Pfeiffer shows up. Um, you know, um, and then so Michelle Pfeiffer breaks the breaks the the you know the crystal, and it's you know it's like she's eaten from the fruit of knowledge and blah blah blah. Um, and then kind of geniusly, there's this. There's a viewer. We're seeing everything through Jennifer Lawrence's perspective. And she does never know what's going on. And she is kind of a weird interloper in this whole religious allegory thing. Because in the Bible, there's no, like, Mother Nature character. There's no defined mother character in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't come till later. Um, So... You know, you can say there's even not in the New Testament. No, but like when you say when you say like the Virgin Mary and stuff like that, I think there's a lot of people that would want to say like, oh, it's the Virgin. You know, it's a Virgin thing, but it's not. I always take I always take like the Holy Spirit aspect of it to be that that could be. But I think it's I think man's connection to God, like God is nature. But I think it's really we are not going to become that sort of. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really clearly she's a Mother Nature figure in the sense that she really doesn't have any attachment to the people. No, her attachment is to the house. And to God, yeah. But her attachment isn't even really... Yeah, her attachment is to God, but her main focus... Is purity, is the always, purity of is, the house. It's yeah. always the house. Why are you doing this? She regards him as a part of the house. So he is letting people do things to the house that she doesn't want him to do. Um, and I think it's really interesting that we come at these from two such distinct perspectives. Because where you see, like, hope... In the sense that God can kind of just remake the God and Javier Bardem can kind of just remake. He can restart this stuff. You know what I mean? He can redo it. Um, at the end, it's going to end. Um, but he always gets undone by like his own vanity. You know what I mean? And so it's not like a redeeming. It's a, a redeeming portrait of God. It's a. It's a. He's a very selfish God, and he really wants these people to love him at all costs. Well, there's like that old. Judaic kind of like jealousy that to, to this sort of God, like it's a very jealous God mm-hmm. in this. Um, but there is still like a reverence for it, and I think that's especially shown like in in the title characters that he's the only one capitalized, right? But I think the reverence then, and this is where I think this movie goes deeper than just a. Re- if you can get deeper than a religious allegory, I think this movie goes deeper in the sense that um, I think it's really about creating art like oh, no yeah a lot of people do get that from this he's an he's an artist 
God is an artist. And the idea of the artist, and I know well, that's that's shown that's shown one hundred percent in with his the fact that he's a poet, yeah, to write. Um, but I think it's, but I think this, when you're an artist, your idea is. So if we're looking at this from the perspective of like a benevolent Christian God, technically he should really take no pride in. He shouldn't really be taking pride in his work so much. You know what I mean? He's just doing the thing he was meant to do. He created life. Um, is there's no scene in the in the Bible where God's giving himself, like, a high five. You know what I mean? Like, look at that. I mean, there's Noah's flood, which we'll get to, um, where, like, they're ruining the thing that he gave them. But he's not saying, like, you're ruining this fucking awesome thing that I gave you. They're just kind of ruining the fabric of existence. Like, he made this thing to operate this certain way, and now you're fucking it up. Yeah. Um, But in this, he really wants that adoration. He wants to put the thing out there and have people be like, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving this to us. And that's what he can't really fight you, against. Do you think so? I think he's in yeah. pain without it getting out. I think he's suffering Mm-mm. without getting that thought out there. I, that's what no, I, that's, I, 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 I agree the with the artist. When the people show up, he wants them there. He can't make them leave. When they're trapped inside that room with the baby and she's like, make them go, he's like, I don't want them to go. He needs them to be there. His whole value system is based on people loving him. And she's, and she's, her, her love for him is unconditional. And he has no use for that unconditional love. He wants, that, he wants to feed on their appreciation of what he's wrought. I, yeah. Like they've come, they've come so far. They've, you know, in that one, you know, the, the, you know, unbelievable Stephen McHattie is back yeah. in this movie too. Um, the as, better Lance Hendrickson, and he says, and Lance Hendrickson's pretty good. <laughs> and he says, like in this thing, he's like, I feel like in your writing that you were writing this just for me. Um, and God responds to that. He's like, he doesn't know how to. Do, that's what he wanted. He wanted to speak to every person individually, and that to me is not a Christian. A specifically Christian God thing—that's an artist thing. That's what an artist oh, wants. No, you know but, what I mean? But I don't see. To me, and I took that in a lot of ways of painstakingly needing to create something. And I agree a lot with the. Agree talked about this right after leaving the, the film about mm-hmm. how it's like the kind of like artist quest. But painstakingly needed to get an idea out there or to get something out. This thing that is the burden on you—that is the weight—that is the the claws and hooks digging deep into the flesh, mm. you know, and needing it out there, needing this thing that has become so monumental and such a burden and such a waste onto you. But do you think getting that's... it out there, but then once you get it out there, you're like, oh, you, you feel like that relief, but then you're like, is this important? And then when people respond to it, it's not so much the fact that people are giving you the adoration. And this is my thought. And this is where I disagree with you, but it's the fact that the weight and the burden on you and getting it out there yeah. meant something. And so that burden and that weight and that needing to create had importance, not so much in the people adoring you, but in the fact that they understand that that thing that weighed on you had value. And that's how I took it. This is a really fucking good movie, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think that's there too, and that's an art, and that's the artist's perspective. Also, you want, but it's not so much pride as it is like, 
Yeah, acceptance. It is. No, it's it's acceptance in the sense of like, listen, I was fucking suffering. I really want a reason to have suffered. And then the second that people appreciate that, it's like, thank God I was, or thank myself in this case, I guess. Thank, yeah. <laughs> um, Thanks, me. <laughs> yeah. That this thing that was destroying me actually had merit. And it's not so much the pride in the creation of it, but the pride, the, the relief in the sense that but this life's work meant something. Fine. I can see that. In the second half, I can see that in the like the new. Yeah, I'm talking, I'm talking about the second New Testament aspect. But in the old, but he's the same way in the beginning of the movie, where he's the second same way in the old. He's Testament a little more half. zealous in the in the New Testament. Well, not really, because he's saying he's doing it for, you know, he is giving of himself because they've had, you know, there's a death in the family. Where else are they going to go? They have to come here, but it's not just the family. You know what I mean? It's that guy that calls Jennifer Lawrence a cunt because he won't go for a walk with, because she won't go for a walk with him. Yeah, it's all these weird different people that are taking advantage of the situation that he has created for them. And interestingly, and remember when we right after we saw this movie, I was like, I'm determined to figure out what the unbraced the purpose of the unbraced sink is. Like, she keeps saying, that sink's not braced yet, that sink's not braced yet, that sink's not braced yet, and then it falls off the and wall. And it creates the, the flood. It's yeah. the flood. So, but the interesting thing about the flood, which seems so stupid to me that I didn't get it at first, but the interesting thing about it is that he, he had nothing to do with it. Like, she forgot to brace the sink. She, as the, the stand-in for Earth, for Mother Earth, for the caretaker of... The thing that God in the Bible. I don't think flooded. she's a stand-in for Earth, in my opinion. But go ahead. I think she. I think she very clearly is, because she, she has the attachment to the house. She can see into the house, and the house is representative of the thing that she's the caretaker of. The house is the Earth. The house is is bleeding. We're gonna have a good discussion here in about forty-five seconds. Go ahead. Okay, um, and she created the flood. Not God. God didn't have anything to do with the flood. You could say he created it in absentia by allowing these people into his house. But she, they say over and over and over again that she built this house back up with her bare hands, which means that she didn't brace the sink yet, which means that she's the one in essentially that's punishing the people that sought to abuse what God made. The earth, which she is the caretaker of. Hot take. Homeocentric point of view on this. She is the Holy Spirit that's unbraced because man is not yet able to be ready for it. But let's say this. So when it breaks and the flood comes, you know, man's not able to take on the sins and the, and the burdens. And then later on... Now, are you saying she, that man's not able to take on the sins and the burdens? Are you relating that to the idea that... Of the flood. In the sense of, like, okay. you know, washing away man. Well, just talk, I'm just thinking and about like the idea... Pulling, pushing man out. And she's the one that pushes man out. Like, saying that right. she and him are one and the same. In my opinion, okay. Um, I think I, and obviously, obviously, I think I'm, I'm not ever going to deny it. She's not Mother Nature. That's a direct like correlation, a corollary. Um, Arnofsky, I think 100% intended her to be Mother Earth, and I think he intended this to be Jennifer uh, Lawrence. 100% so believes that that's a, what she's doing. Yeah. yeah, but man, do I do I take from that that it's man being unwashed still, man being unprepared still. And, and that being an example. And then when that New Testament comes and then, like, he brings on that new word and he brings the baby forth. And it's like, 
there's there's a second there. There's a second during that like hectic third act where there's maybe a preparation and like she's worried and she's fearful of what they're gonna do before they devour the baby. Where it's like maybe man's ready for like maybe well, maybe he, they're ready. Maybe but, they, but they're not yet, and that's why she is distru- like ruined is because. But she's, she's not the connection between man and God. But she's not ruined. She's the ruiner. Well, yeah, she's the ruiner, but then she's destroyed to but she's not. But that's, she's not destroyed, though, because her heart, like, continues to exist. It's like a perpetual heart. Yeah, because it's a perpetual love. Because there's a built-up naivety, I think. I think that, that heart represents that, that, that purest naivety to it. That purest... I See, I disagree. Cleanliness I think to the it. main character of this movie is the house. No, I, no, I agree. I and agree. I think she is. I mean, that's why she is the only one who has access to this kind of secret knowledge that the house, you know, is giving her. Um, you know, and I wish he had kind of done it more. I wish he had kind of leaned on it more, um, with you know her touching the walls and kind of seeing the pulsing. You know, in, in, in yeah, like her redness her, and as it her rots. needing to wipe out the the stain, right? And then on the, on the floorboards, and the idea that her um, that thing that elixir that she drinks is you know a, a powder the same color as the one that she makes the the color with for the for the wall color. Um, it's in the same kind of bottle. Um, she is, you know, she is he trying to heal herself in the same way that she, you know. With the same tools that she's using to bring life to, you know, the earth as it is. Or to, to this world. And the world is contained just in the house. But isn't in Christian allegory, isn't the connection between earth and God that... Earth, God, and like, like the word, that Holy Spirit. So isn't... It, she's that connection. Well, that's she's, why I think we're a band. That's why I think we're a... That's, and he kind of did the same thing in Noah. Is that he took a general basic Christian foundation... And then beefed it up with these kind no, of no, absolutely. But um, you really can't these cultural these cultural myths that exist beyond the Bible, but are related to the Bible. So, the but you really of, can't abandon an idea without like with you know. Well, that's why you I don't can't abandon the Trinity idea well, think, without completely abandoning the story. And that's why then. I don't think it's a perfect. That's why I don't think it's a perfect Trinity, in the sense that I think. But he focuses. He does present so many levels of it. It could like be. the baby wouldn't be presented as the Christ. Well, yeah, and they wouldn't have, and they wouldn't have destroyed it. You yeah, know, if they didn't, if they didn't need to. But they also didn't need to. If if. But she brings it. She's a part that brings it forth. But if the and the goal, part yes. The, but if the, what what is inside the child? What's inside the child is supposed to be the word, right? The Holy but if, of the Spirit. But if it's if it ends with his. With the death uh, of, it's fun to have an atheist and a Christian debate. Well, it <laughs> but if it ends, well, I'm not necessarily an atheist. Well, yeah, sorry. Um, um, Agnostic. Whatever. I'm not even really one of those. I'm just, I have my own. Scientologist. My Jesus is, my Jesus is Plato and my Socrates, my God is Socrates. That's, I mean, that's how my head works. Your personal Jesus is Depeche Mode? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to reach out and reach out and touch some faith here. Um, that's fine, but I think if if you look at it from a biblical perspective, unless you want to read some revelationy things into the end of the movie, the movie technically should end with the death of the death of the child. The the from a degradation perspective, the movie should end with the death of the child, but it doesn't. The movie ends with them beating the holy shit out of her 
on the ground, you know, stripping her and kicking her and stuff like that. Her degradation is a key component and links directly to the degradation of the house. From her abuse comes her blowing blowing up the house. Um which goes further than the Bible does. No, and I you know agree. I, mean? I think, which I think, is, which I is where that necessarily call it to... nihilism, but there's definitely a, a cyclicness to it. See, that's the thing. So here's here's I don't really think this movie has any f- true flaws, and especially upon watching it again, this <laughs> Darren is... Aronofsky just got a major direction. <laughs> Fine, especially this is the f- fourth time I've watched it because I watched it on demand when it came out. Um, no, this is the third yeah, time. This is the third time I watched it, and then I've watched it twice. Just you know, because it's been on. I watched it in Prime theaters and twice on yeah. Prime. Um, I actually, you know, so we talked about the idea that Jennifer Lawrence seemed to be a little over her head, which is good. I think, which makes. I think the more which is I important. watch it, I think it's. I think it's really, for most of the movie, I think it really works, and I think she's actually really great, in the sense that she seems legitimately, she seems legitimately scared for what's gonna happen to the thing that she is in charge of for the thing that she loves is for the thing that is attached to her um it's at the end of the movie where the anger doesn't seem 100 percent real no i'd agree where it seems where it seems to kind of degenerate into just some general shouting instead of a deep do you mean oh my javier (laughs) he's fantastic in this movie um every like I mean, she's great. I mean, and I'll take back everything I said about Jennifer Lawrence in this movie when we first came out of the movie theater. She's fucking great in this movie. She is, she does her job perfectly up until that last scene where I just want more. I just want more real anger. Um, And I was thinking about this too. I think she was afraid. I think from her interpretation of, of, you know, like she very much believed it was a mother nature perspective. I think she wanted that naivety and purity to it. And she was afraid to get more raw and angry with it. So there's not a real raw I want Yeah, I want an openness to the anger. You know what I mean? Where literally you have no idea if it's, more it's like, going to... If she's going to stay hinged. You know what I mean? If it's Or if it's just going to open up into something, you know, more terrible. Yeah, you Which want, is, I think, what the movie needed at the end of the movie. You want the concept of retribution from her. Mm-hmm. But you never get that. You get the concept of... Just defeat. You get pissed off. Yeah, pissed you off. Get, you don't get like divine off, justice, but, but like internalized. Right. There's no like divine, like divine retribution. Yeah, you yeah. don't get that. It's a good sound. It's huh? Dry skin season. <laughs> um, I got it too. And and so it's it is a no. Keep that in. <laughs> this is my nickels. Yeah. We're gonna become a <laughs> we're gonna become an ADR podcast. <laughs> we're gonna spend Wind. a lot. Anyways, yeah, I think she wanted to so preserve the, like that that purity of Mother Nature idea, which is fine um, from one viewing of the film. But there needed to be a rawness in that end. Like the fact that what she brought so far to the film by her own omission, like her, her whole being was just destroyed by yeah. man. You know, you want... The concept that maybe she's not going to, but that she very much could kill every motherfucker in the room mm-hmm. without mercy and without a second thought. And there's not it's not there. And I would agree. Like everything else before that, that that not necessarily naivety, but that innocence and she that maintains she does that her that. love for him and it, she maintains that her attachment to him rises above all other things. 
and then she when he takes the baby, rises she kind against. of realizes rises against all those other things to really get anti-Trump. And, um, <laughs> she, um, when it doesn't, you want that anger to be profound. You want, and it's just movie angry. You want unhinged, and there's I not, want unhinged. There's yeah. not an unhinged. But it's funny because I had the same conversation with you know, and not to um, Star Wars. You know, The Last Jedi is a significantly worse movie than this one. But I was saying the same thing about Adam Driver's performance as Kylo Ren at the end of the movie. I was like, what I want is Adam Driver to lose his fucking mind. Am I the only person that doesn't have an opinion on The Last Jedi? Who's just like, there's a movie that happened. But I, that's, that's my opinion of it. Also, uh, okay. I think it's a general... I think it's generally a mistake not from a... Uh, um, not from a movie standpoint, but just for the fact that they even bothered to make it. Um, but I, th- that's why I want when it goes there, when it looks like it's going to go there, when they're shooting Luke Skywalker's ghost from an ATAT walker, and Adam Driver is yelling, and Kylo Ren is yelling at them. I want him to go fucking bananas, but he doesn't ever go bananas. Even though Adam Driver going bananas would be fucking cool. I, I disagree on that. I don't want him to go bananas in that scene. But that's a conversation I don't want to have because I don't give a shit. Um, but. <laughs> It's just I don't care about that. Movie <laughs> it's, it's a movie that was. But that's where I good want. Special I want. I want her to go. No, whatever, I agree. What, whatever everyone thinks she I gave want, during Silver Linings Playbook, I want her to bring that to bear in her angry scene. Yeah, and she doesn't. Like even though she's capable of it, I don't think she did a great job in Silver Linings Playbook. I don't think she's that good in that movie. I didn't think she was that good of an actress until this film. Uh, I, no, that's not true. She's good in Winter's Bone. I didn't think she was good after that. Until this film, I hate Silver Linings Playbook. But oh, that's God. a different conversation. Yeah, I think I think conversation we could have is Bradley Cooper's in it, mm. and it's directed by David O. Russell. Oh. That's a big thumbs down for Tom. Nolan. We will not be having American Hustle at all on this, or an I Heart Huckabee's conversation. Oh no, I, I changed my list. You didn't hear? Son of a bitch! I did not. <laughs> but no, I I agree. Um, but yeah, no, no, I I understand that, but I just. I don't know, man. I'm I coming at it from a different angle than you when it comes well, that's, to this. But that's, why that's what's great about this oh, film. This is why, exactly. This movie is. This movie wants this conversation. You know what I mean? This movie was made to have this conversation. And there's, and there's uh, another film of his that, that more elicits that kind of emotion from me um, that we will talk about. So sure, that's why me it too. That's why it doesn't show up on my list, just mm-hmm. because, you know, I... Like I said, I took a more academic than personal approach to it. But this is a this is a great movie. This is a criminally overlooked movie. Yeah, and, and I keep waiting one, for it. To... There's one thing I want to bring up. Yeah, yeah, bring it up. Do it, man. Am I not frustrated that Andrew Westblom Westblom didn't get nominated for editing? Because oh yeah, can we talk about how and Matthew Liebetik perf- didn't get nominated for cinematography? The cinematography's nice, pretty. It's it's good. I don't think it, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, but like I don't think it actually adds a lot to the story. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm, I'm just saying it looks nice, but it doesn't. No. I, okay, so I've come to this a personal opinion that cinematography only matters when it adds fundamentally to the story. Oh, and I see, think, that's we disagree. And I on think, that. I think this movie does is is beautifully shot. But a lot of the moments that work and add to the story are more Arnowski's direction. Well, see, but, and so, cinematography. The, 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 and that's why my cinematography, sure. a winner of that year, was a movie we'll talk about. We're going to talk about it. The shot I always go to is 
like right when he's presenting the baby to the masses. And you get that you get that kind of sick orange red glow like rising up from like the bottom floor. Oh no, and yeah. It's, and it's obviously it's an Aronofsky shot. It's something that looks a lot like stuff he's done before. It's a key Aronofsky kind of directorial trope and it's it's mind-boggling amazing every time I see it. But the way that it's lit and the way that it's presented and the way that those dark reds and those browns kind of make like the white parts and, the, and like the less dark parts seem a kind of sick yellow and but it's also really active it's a it's an active light um it's not it doesn't look like set direction you know what i mean and it doesn't look like something where they're trying to like let's make this look pretty they're just making it look not profound but in its lack of profundity it is profound you mm-hmm. know what i mean in its activity it's it's profound. It's the same thing with it's, it's the opposite kinetic. of what we were talking about with Blade Runner twenty forty nine, where there was no that cinematography is not kinetic. Yeah, the cinematography is just still look at this cool picture I just took. No, no, and I, I okay, so I'm not denigrating the cinematography of this film. <laughs> I think it's important to realize that people will approach like different aspects of film in a different way. I want cinematography to me works best. I will consider the best cinematography of the year when it works towards the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the kinetic energy, in, in terms of the shot composition, and in terms of eliciting an emotional reaction, hmm. Hmm. emotional reaction, I wouldn't necessarily say it does. Okay. That's, that's my problem. I, in terms of like an energy, it does. Mm-hmm. In terms of like a wondrousness, in terms of how the shot looks, yes. But in terms of the emotional resonance, I don't get that. It's it, okay. there's there's a bit of um, I, I feel it's more the blocking. I feel it's more how Arnofsky orients the scene and Andrew Westblum one hundred percent deserve to be nominated yeah. for this because holy shit, if you want to get across the fact that this is a mother nature allegory. That editing does it supremely, mm-hmm. and this is this is why I'd say that the first two acts, the first act is very slow, very methodic. Mm-hmm. Every you know you have you have those long takes, you have you know long shot compositions. Um, in the second act, things kind of ramp up a bit, and then finally, in that third act, things go fucking nuts. You yeah, know? They do. and they go further and further nuts. There's just quicker cuts. There's the dialogue gets gets much faster. Everything everything moves at a, at an incredible pace. Mm-hmm. And if you are looking at this as from a mother nature perspective and how we're destroying the world, mm-hmm. that's how it would be. Yeah. You know, in the fact of for the first couple million years of existence, or a couple hundred thousand years, let's say, of human Homo sapien existence, we did all right. Or seven thousand years if you're a <laughs> creationist um, of existence. You know, things things moved at a certain moved at a very methodical pace. Yeah. And then that third act, especially that last part of that third act, move at such a rapid speed that it's like you're fucking destroying everything. Mm-hmm. And that is profoundly exceptional at storytelling. Oh, yeah. I think one of the best edited films of the decade, easily. Huh. I think if, if awesome. somebody... I agree with you, but... Yeah. I think if somebody wants to look at editing, if somebody needs to wonder why 
editing shouldn't be done during the commercial break of the Oscars. Why the best <laughs> editing Oscar shouldn't be done. This is why. Why it's not a because it's not a, a film. I think I think a... I think this film is made by its editing. Personally. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think it it works has has a good allegory without it, but I think it becomes a profoundly thoughtful movie with the way it's edited. Hmm. Yeah. Thoughts. I agree with you. It's fantastic. Silver Star. It's fantastic. I want something more profound, but okay. That's no, no. fine. You can have a gold star if you want. <laughs> I want a gold star. You want a platinum star? Uh-oh. Um, I think that's it for yeah. this week. Um, you know, yeah. go to go you to can, the things. Do the yeah. Do the there things. are various social medias. Uh, you can look at our Instagram that I haven't updated in weeks. <laughs> because <laughs> just taking photos of beers, and I've. You know what? It's if somebody, hard. If we're somebody, just, if we're somebody, not there. We're not if there. If somebody wants our Instagram to be updated, they can tell us. Tell us on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're pretty active on we're Twitter. We're doing the Twitter, yeah. Yeah, we're doing the Twitter. We're doing the tweets. We're the first people to talk about house that, no, house that Jack built being an underrated cut for one day. We're the first ones to be like, hey, that, that's the thing that's going to happen. Hmm. People got very stoked about that. I feel like that episode's going to be a lot of us just kind of like silently looking at each other and just shaking our heads. <laughs> yeah, we'll need a, we'll need, create a YouTube channel for that. I don't know. But if you want to... If you if you care about weeks old Instagram pictures, follow us on Instagram.com slash pivotalfilm. If you want to see us a little more active, follow us on twitter.com slash film You can write to us at pivotal uh, pivotal pivotal film pivotal film. film. Yeah. Pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to pivotalfilm.com. And our porn parody, by the way, is Pivotal Film. <laughs> pivotal Film? What does that mean? If you go to our no, website, pivotal, yeah, pivotalfilm.com, you can get links to subscribe to us on various platforms, and you can see a link to... Uh, you can get links to the beers that we drank and lists of the movies that we watched and links to the website. And uh, as we come to the end of shows. the year, I will, we're, I'm going to put some essays up. And I think as you get done with classes, we're going to get some yeah, essays yeah. up about... I'm I'm gonna do the films we've seen this year. I want to keep it kind of modern. Well, I'm gonna try to for me at least. You know what I'm gonna do is I've got a bunch of takes on some movies that like we didn't get to in the pod. Like I've the got a pod? I've got a, I've got a catch me if you can essay that's like half done. In the sense that I had this take that I you know didn't bring up because it didn't seem the rest of us we really are about. suckers. <laughs> um, but that type of stuff, you yeah. know, as as thoughts occur to us, if we have a lot to say about things, you know, we can just. You know, we'll just we'll throw it out there. Surprisingly, a lot of this podcast is on the fly. Yeah, sur- surprisingly, Mo- a lot of it slash all of it. <laughs> the Metropolis episode was not. Yeah, <laughs> the Metropolis episode was methodically thought out over go. a week and a half. Um, but yeah, you know, if you can think of any other movies that we should methodically find out over a week and a half, until then, go see a movie, drink a beer, and see another movie. And then drink several more beers, and we'll talk to you next week.